Despite decades of promises from politicians that we are committed to green goals, carbon emissions are going up. So I think it's just a question of when will we realize that we have to actually start building massive amounts of low carbon power plants. And a lot of those will be nuclear. So, so I'm just hoping that it will be sooner rather than later for our sakes and for, for the sake of my children. The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott, providing a rational, evidence-based perspective addressing important societal issues. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Rational View. I'm your host, Dr. Al Scott. On this episode, I'm excited to be interviewing uh, a person who I've admired for a long time and who I've, who has kind of led me uh, through this morass of issues, uh, a fellow eco-modernist. Uh, I'm sure you're going to enjoy it. Uh, I just heard her interview uh, on the Decouple podcast by Chris Kiefer, uh, and it's She's a, a great inspiration to anyone who is fighting the forces of anti-science darkness. As always, if you enjoy the content that you're hearing, please press like and share it with your friends. Let's grow this movement and see if we can make a difference. Ida Rieshalme is a biologist specializing in biomedical research, a science communicator, and a fiction writer. She's a Finn by birth and has a master's degree from Sweden. She has worked in environmental chemistry, diabetes research, pharmaceutical biobank labs, and lab robotics. Nowadays, she lives in Switzerland with her husband and two children. She is an active member of three eco-modernist associations across Europe. Ida, welcome to The Rational View. Thanks so much, Al. I'm very happy that you invited me. Well, thank you for coming on the show. Could you please tell our listeners something about yourself and your background? Your expertise seems so broad, from diabetes research to lab robotics. How did you get into all of these diverse fields? Well, uh, uh, actually, it's it's uh, when you do bi- biological lab work, then uh, lab robotics sort of came in as a part of my job. I worked at Roche uh, Biobank in Switzerland. So we gather in lots of data, uh, DNA and RNA samples and, and proteomics samples from uh, patients across lots of trials. And then uh, in order to use those materials, we have a huge workflow. So it's, it's, it needs to be automatized. You can't do it by hand. So you need robots that do your work for you. And I thought it was really cool that I had this opportunity. They sent me for a week's course to learn to, to program our, our robots for the lab, ah. which I, I enjoyed a lot. Well, I'm very excited to have you on the show. Uh, your Thoughtscapism blog is a wonderful resource uh, of information on nuclear energy. And I've shamelessly shared your excellent, well-referenced pro-nuclear graphs all over Facebook. I'm a big fan. Thank you. <laughs> That's great. That's that's great to to hear. It's exactly why I'm I'm making them because I just want to help a little bit, make it more accessible, so that it can get around easier. So, what is the significance of the name of your blog, Thoughtscapism? What inspired you to start publishing? So basically, I was really interested in biology and I was really interested in environmental um, areas. And on top of that, I'm also, I've always wanted to write books and I'm just interested about language and about psychology and communication and how people, how, how you can communicate better. And I realized that if I, uh, if I want to write a blog, it, it will be too limiting to have just say uh, 
the biology topics or just energy topics. So uh, it's rather trying to build this this uh, uh, entire landscape of your thoughts, how you understand, how I understand the world, wh- where do the pieces go, where do they connect? Not only how do we understand the science, but how do we understand each other? How do we communicate the science? What does it mean for us and so on? So it was really about this uh, thought landscape. And so I figured... I'll go with thoughtscapism. It might be a mouthful, but but it's it allows me this broad perspective. Yeah, I've I've interviewed a couple biologists and a doctor, a medical doctor, and and I think a lot of people on the anti-nuclear power side will be surprised to find uh, people with medical know-how being pro-nuclear because the the prevailing public opinion is that radiation bad, radiation cause cancer. What made you realize that pro-nuclear is the way to go? I think it's a really long process because there's there was such a cultural brainwashing to, to be against nuclear. So I grew up with this idea that nuclear must be really bad and we can't, we just can't accept that kind of risk. So it was completely natural to think that we should really shut it all down. But uh, I think that during, it's, it's really, I had the privilege of having people I trusted who gave me a little bit sort of a um, gave me pause and gave me a reason to rethink and, and be a little bit open-minded. Mm-hmm. I had a friend who, who used to be anti-nuclear, who uh, um, we, we were both interested in horses. She was a writing teacher, so we had nothing to do with that. But she was uh, interested in, in sciences and she was a chemist. She wanted to go study chemistry. And when I met her, she, had already, uh, she was already doing her degree. And she said that, well, yeah, so she used to be on the barricades saying no for nuclear. And then she thought that since she's a very rational kind of person, she wants to have better arguments. And that that when she went to study chemistry, she decided to do radiochemistry Ah. so that she could have even better arguments. No more about the radioactive effects in the body. Mm -hmm. And during her studies... Uh, she had a sort of change of heart because the more you learn, uh, the more it challenges your thinking that way. Okay, it was a little bit simplistic to think that it's very bad. And she she was the one who told me that, you know, well, nuclear waste thing, it's, it's really, really safe. There's, there's so many levels of safe uh, safety there. So we really know what we're doing. And uh, that gave me like, oh, wait, all right. So, so maybe it's not... Maybe it's not all catastrophic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And just that little nudge gave me the opening opening needed. Because then when I later returned and to environmental topics, because of uh, climate change really largely, uh, I mean, biodiversity and conservation is also, also uh, they're also topics that are very important to me. But yes. climate change was uh, threatening all of that. Mm-hmm, <laughs> and mm-hmm. then I realized that, okay, so energy is not really something that had interested me before. Uh, but... Actually, this is vital for all those living things, all the all the the biological life on the planet. Uh, because for the sake of that, we really should look at how we produce in- energy. So then I I got into it, and I realized more and more like wait wait wait, nuclear is also here again. It's not just bad. <laughs> there are some pros. Like actually, it can produce a lot of ele- electricity. And uh, and then when I heard about uh, advanced reactors that can actually use up nuclear waste. And I realized that, okay, this old fear that I had uh, that nuclear waste must be really bad, it had still been living in the background. I couldn't, it wasn't easy to let go of that fear. It's really, it has a really strong basic grip 
Mm-hmm. And when I realized that we can get rid of the waste by using it up and producing more clean energy from it, then I sort of felt this is sort of a moral imperative. We have to build these new nuclear reactors so that we can take care of the waste and reduce it to a fraction again uh, to waste that is only um, radioactive for a few hundred years. Yes. And and then during that time, I, I then started really being actively in discussions and trying to talk about, hey, wait, look, look there's this really important solution that we should be using that's getting all this negative press. And a lot of it, if you look into it, it's it's completely off. So so here is an important topic we should be looking at anew. Yeah, I, I noticed uh, on your blog that you were a member of Mothers for Nuclear Energy. Uh, is that along the same lines as you were, you were speaking? Like it counters the impression of pro-nuclear people as being looking like me with the gray beard and and the physics degree now you have nurturers out there who appreciate nuclear energy because they have children and they care about their children's future is that is that sort of the the thought there absolutely yeah absolutely because uh, i had already been uh, um on energy forums and on and talking about nuclear quite a lot and i had realized that yes uh, with the crowd that's out there you have a lot of people who who support nuclear i think they also care but they come out uh, you, they come off as as very uh, not as caring they they there are lots of people who who think nuclear is really cool it's technically really cool it's a very interesting physical uh phenomenon that we can harness mm-hmm. so there's this coolness side to it but if you only talk about how how oh, other people are wrong and this is really cool and really the best tech we have that it does not convey that there's also caring about these same kind of values behind it. So then when I saw uh, Kristen and Heather and I saw their pictures and their stories and uh, which were very much lifting up the side that uh, not that they don't uh, appreciate the coolness or the the, the in- ingenuity of the engineering and so on, but that they also bring up the fact that, hey, we really care for these things. We really care for the environment. We really want clean air. We really want safe futures for our children. So the fact that it's not just something that's cool or that's that that generates money for some some higher ups uh, who have uh, important positions at nuclear power plants or something like no, it's it has a different value that should really not be ignored behind that veneer of, of uh, great technical expertise yeah yeah and on your on your blog in the nuclear section you you have all these great arguments and discussions you, you basically address all the, the facile arguments of the anti-nuclear power cabal uh, you know it's too slow you have a, a great graph of build times of low carbon electricity showing nuclear power is humanity's fastest proven tool for decarbonization. And that's, you know, a myth. You basically hit all these myths. It costs too much. You have a a table of building costs of low carbon electricity that shows when you distribute the costs of the much longer lifetime of nuclear, it becomes the cheapest source per kilowatt hour. Uh, You have a nice graph of capital costs for reactors and show that the most popular reference for levelized cost of energy, the Lazard report, seems to be cherry-picking only the highest cost. That that one surprised me, actually, because Lazard is supposed to be this respected uh, economic reference, but it, how did you find that? 
Yeah, exactly. How can... Uh, it's it's really startling. I mean, I, I had found these uh, these amazing claims in in uh, topics other topics like vaccines and and uh, agriculture. You have lots of myths around, and some that I had fallen for myself, especially in agriculture. But then when I started, and I realized that hey, these myths are everywhere. That sure. So I've grown up hearing that you know nuclear power, uh, it's really slow and really expensive, and I've just accepted that surely because people say. It it must be true. But this is maybe the biggest lesson I've had, that on all levels of society, in all uh, all political parties, in, in all um, uh, groups, you have lots of assumptions that are just taken as true. And that it's so fascinating that it's not really difficult to have, uh, to just dig in and find the information. You just need a little bit of time and like, Okay, so I've heard this is the truth. Uh, nuclear power is very expensive. Let's look at it. How do you look at it? And just um, being precise, defining how is it expensive? Is it over time or is it is it upfront cost? Or what do you mean exactly? Already hones your thinking into like, okay, so, so real information is actually something uh, that has to be precise and well-defined. It's not just a vague idea that surely it's, it's in this one way it's bad but you have to actually ask a specific question and find the answer and a lot of the times you find that uh, people will pass around an answer that simply um, people they trusted have repeated it with maybe without thinking because people they trusted have repeated it so yeah it's uh, um, I was also really surprised about this Lazard economic uh, uh, their numbers because I was thinking that surely surely they should be more reasonable. They can't just pick the most expensive uh, version, sometimes even even uh, more expensive than the US, most expensive US uh, prices for reactors. Where do they get this number? <laughs> Why? It's, they fall victim to the bias that's out there. It, it seems like the fear of, of nuclear energy is rampant and the easiest response is a fear response because the numbers are big. The power density is huge. The accidents are front page and people see these highly popularized nuclear accidents. They're, you know, you can count them on, on one hand, but they don't put it into perspective uh, with the deaths from fossil fuels. Now, I, I personally like to use the airplanes versus cars argument. Uh, if you need to go a long ways, flying is, we know far and away, the safest way to travel. Uh, many few, many more person kilometers are achieved safely on airplanes than in cars, but people still see a high profile plane crash and they decide to drive a long ways and more people die. This primal fear uh, of being out of control or something pops up. I think the fear of radiation is very similar. It is, it is. And and here I think that... that um it's interesting how pervasive it is. I mean, especially if we take it, uh, uh, take a step back and try to look at a topic and think that now we we really make an effort to look at it objectively, then often we manage to maybe see through some of these levels. But I think that you can see it in in um, people in politics and in science also people people who are really knowledgeable and who hear about the the facts about nuclear and consider that okay so there are lots of false claims around it but that doesn't necessarily erase the little un insecurity about it because even 
I I've, I've just recently went to a science conference and there we talked about the importance of vaccine programs and the importance of of trying to get you know, gene editing and, and uh, biotech crops to people uh, and trying to counter the misinformation campaigns. But then still there, people are hesitant to say that, yeah, you know, for climate change in France, we have a lot of nuclear, but some people want to get rid of it and, you know, they might have concerns. And people are sort of scared to step there and say that, you know, this is also a misinformation campaign. Mm -hmm. That that they are, it's, it's, it's a little bit insecure for for all of us. So, as as I was thinking that the the name of the podcast, the rational view, it's something we aspire to, and in a way, um, when you look at when you look at human psychology, there are rationales for why we react in in the ways we react, mm -hmm. but it doesn't mean that we always react in a rational manner in the in the context of the situation. Yeah. So of course, it makes sense that we have these these uh, fast risk perceptions because they just make us more. We have to have agency. We come to a situation in the savanna and we see something and we have to have something that allows us to have a quick reaction and to do something. Yeah. It doesn't help to stop there and start reflecting, you know, being really methodical and rational about it. It helps to have a quick plan of action. So it is completely rational from a, from a species point of view to have these fast reactions. Ah, yes. But then when we come to these abstract situations where we have this this really strange power that we don't really understand, we 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 can learn it but it doesn't go it, it doesn't sink into the reptile brain. We don't understand it. We can't see, we can't touch it. We can't like I'll I'll push it on a lower level now and this is how I control it. You don't have this tactile feeling that you have with water and you have with fire, you know, how to, to stop a fire. Uh, we just don't have it. So we all have this little insecurity about it. We all have this little reservation. So we are more careful about making, even scientists who are really well educated about these topics, are more uh, measured and more cautious about making strong statements about this, which sort of makes it harder to get the message out there. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a feeling, right? And and I've read that you know most decisions are are taken emotionally rather than rationally, and then uh, justified post hoc with, with with the tools of logic at our disposal. And we really need to work hard to to change that or to counter that, and to have people make the proper decisions. Uh, you know, I had the same thing. The first time I got in an, on a jet plane, I was deadly nervous, even knowing, you know, my parents were telling me, no, this is safe. This is, you know, these things don't crash. Sure, you've seen the, the flashy television shows of planes crashing. <laughs> but right, exactly, exactly. We we have this reaction. And I think, so I think it's a great thing to remember to have this uh, compassion, understanding for these reactions, not to say, you are stupid, because you're afraid. <laughs> yeah. No, we're built that way. We we are easily afraid, and it's it's helped us. But it doesn't always. It, it's there's also errors in those feelings. So so understanding that it's okay to have these reactions. Everybody has them, but also the fact that as as a mother, for instance, I as soon as you bring in kids in the equation, we our alarm bells start going on of louder. Mm -hmm. uh, it's always more important to take care of, of kids because they're helpless and we are responsible for them. So we get afraid more easily. But then it's it's also we're not slaves to these reactions. We shouldn't treat them as something that should steer us blindly. We should then 
really take that responsibility. I mean, for the public at large or for our kids or, or whatever the scenario is, we should actually then take that responsibility seriously and say that, okay, my fears is this, their fears say this, but how do we make sure that they don't come to more harm? How do we pr protect them from harm? And realizing that if we only let this fear rule, we are actually letting people get, you know, get harmed by our decisions. So if we truly want to respect even this fear, respect the caring that is in it, then we have to give some time for reflections to check uh, these reactions. Are they based on good, um, uh, good logic? Is there, is there, are there good grounds? Because often when we are afraid, we, f we forget that there's, there's always, a, uh, you ha always have to weigh the situations. It's pros and cons. You have alternatives and they all have risks. So we have the power to then look at those alternatives and see that, wow, okay, so we should really go for the one with less risk so that we don't get blinded by one fear and only stare at that one. You, you had a good quote on, on your website, I would paraphrase it. You can't only look at the risks of one thing. You have to look at the risks of not doing nuclear as well as the risks of nuclear because it's very easy to shine a bright light on on nuclear and point out all of the flaws in in excruciating detail because every large industrial process has flaws it has waste streams it has toxins it has dangerous things and in isolation this is very frightening but then if you hold it up and balance it, which is what I think is the most important thing we as scientists can bring to the public, this is, you know, we've looked at the data, we've looked at the epidemiology on radiation and the epidemiology on fossil fuels, and we can provide a balanced thing to the public so that they can make these rational decisions and, and, and fight these fear responses. You have a, a great graphic on, on Fukushima, um, show that living in the Fukushima restricted areas is safer than living in Tokyo. And you can imagine families when the Fukushima Re Daiichi reactor blew up, being evacuated to Tokyo and harming their children. Right, right. I mean, it's a, a very hard decision. Like, you have to have a lot of fortitude when the government is saying, you need to move out of here and let's go to a safe place like Tokyo. But it would have been safer had they stayed if based on what we know of medical science and the effects of radiation. And even if you calculate the, the linear no threshold theorem doses, the, the number of people that would have died or the number of uh, years that would have been lost on average is a, a couple months per person on average would have been lost even using the linear no threshold theorem. Whereas moving to Tokyo, you've got thousands more people that be harmed. Yeah, it's it's really. Um, I suppose one one reason we do this is because it gets really complex if we look at the whole context. But here, we should at least take some of the biggest factors into account, or some of the similar. So, so at least the industrial exposures. The, obviously, it's different whether you are. Um, whether you are choosing to do something because there are lots of, of factors um, in it for you, whether you want to live in a big city, there's there's pros to that, obviously. Uh, so, But if you're looking at one health effect, come on, you have to bring in at least some context of other similar big health effects. So, so uh, yeah, it's, it's how we talk about it. One of the most important things we can do is bring some context put things in a context so that we understand so with, with some risk that we have a little bit better feel for or that we can we can um, have 
be a bit more empowered by seeing that, okay, we can choose this or we can choose this and how much worse is that? Because uh, just now I, I watched the recent uh, uh, German documentary about, about um, was the Atom uh, Ausstieg, was it a mistake? Uh, it was a Fukushima uh, 10 year anniversary documentary and uh, there was actually a part of it that was that was uh, really great around 10 minutes they they did have lots of scientists in talking about the fact that that you get all these carbon emissions uh, that you can avoid with nuclear and you have these countries on the green who produce electricity with lots lower emissions like France and Sweden and then they looked at Germany and said like mm, we we are not doing so great so there was some great information there, but then they moved back to looking just, you know, but because of the risks, we really want to get rid of nuclear. And then the rest of the docu documentary, they talked about the fact that how do we research it in still in Germany and does, does that make sense? Well, we want to make sure that it gets safer and that since our neighbors still use it, that it gets safer. So they talked and talked and talked about the risks of nuclear, and they talked about trying to make it safer because it still exists. And not once was there a, a bringing it to any context. Mm. Not once was there, you know, the more you talk about safety, the more you inflate the feeling that there must be something really dangerous about this because we should really, really, really make it safe. And then at, at the same time, you completely quiet about the fact that more than a thousand people die every year because of Germany's... Um, decision to close down nuclear plants. And their opening of the new coal plant. Yeah. Dattel 4, which they opened. And somehow then this this safety talk and this we are taking they are taking their people's fears seriously. And I think there's probably a lot of really good motivation behind that. But they are not taking their population safety seriously. Hmm. There's two different things. The fears and what we actually die That's the problem with a democracy, I guess, is that you need to address what the people are afraid of and, and get the people on your side as a government. And it doesn't uh, push governments to do the right thing if it's unpopular. Yeah, and, and it's also that because of these fear reactions are something that permeates the whole society. It, they apply for journalists, they apply for uh, politicians, they apply for scientists. So it's... Getting the message of context and reasonable, uh, putting it in reasonable context, thinking about it, a little bit, taking the step back. It doesn't happen so easily. It doesn't get out there so easily. So we are sort of victims of that because any group that then takes it as part of their identity that, you know, we are against nuclear, obviously they will, they will hold on to it um, much harder. They have these identity reasons for, for holding on to the same ideas that their peers do. But those happen more easily because of this, this uh, fundamental uh, easier fear that we have for these artificial things that we can't control ourselves, and can't see, can't hear, can't touch. That's just a, a strange danger to us. And every time a government makes an irrational risk decision with nuclear with uh, as opposed to fossil fuels it reinforces the fear and it you know people think they're being rational because they see the governments responding irrationally to nuclear risks yeah definitely 
It gives people the wrong impression. Uh, if you're a rational person and you don't know anything about it and you see governments responding, um, you know, it's too risky. We have to shut it all down. We have to evacuate this area. But if, you know, if they're smart enough to look at these risks and say, well, it looks like nuclear should be the lower risk at this point, but there must be something else. Maybe there's a conspiracy. And this brings people into a conspiratorial th thinking and, and, you know, disbelieving the UNSCI reports on Fukushima and, and Chernobyl. Yeah, no, it's, it's uh, I mean, it's completely reasonable if you see entire governments make decisions and say we should phase out nuclear because of the risks. Then if you're a normal person who is not a physicist or is not into reading research on their free time, of course it's reasonable to think there's something to their reaction. So yeah, it's, it's um, um, the interesting thing is that the nuclear regulators... Uh, they were going to have a conference here in Switzerland uh, about emergency preparedness. How could they learn from the situations with Chernobyl and with Fukushima? And how could they do across board? They, how could they do better if there's ever a situation where, where there's a problem in the nuclear plant or where there's an actual accident? And how do you deal with that situation? And the fact is that they were, they were, there was a lot of problematics. They, they couldn't have the conference because of uh, coronavirus, but the the uh, topics they were going to talk about was that how do you tell people who live near to near a nuclear power plant if if anything happens, and if it is as it is the likeliest scenario as, as it has been so far that actually an evacuation would harm the public more than staying put. How do you communicate that to the public? What what would the public need to trust the government now that for the first time they would come with the message that, you know, it's safest to stay, that please don't worry. Because everything we've learned is is as soon as we hear radiation, artificial radiation or nuclear, we we think worry, worry, worry. <laughs> How do you stop after decades of this message? It's it's a difficult problem. In Fukushima, I guess the government had tried to put out data on the on the state of the radiation, and then the U.S. NRC head had a statement that said, "Oh no, it's much much worse than this." Uh, later, he retracted it um, because it was wrong, but that made people distrust the government because we had these this fear response from the head of the U.S. NRC. Um, and I believe that I don't. I have to go check my references on that, exactly who it was. But there was this uh, respected person from the U.S. nuclear safety who said, oh, my God, this is going to be horrible. You know, everyone should be leaving Japan. <laughs> and, and it just completely undermined what the government was trying to do. It's so difficult because partly you really want uh, authorities and uh, those responsible who should lead the, pro the pro progress, uh, process to give, to have good communication, to have one level-headed message, not go around saying this uh, completely different things. But then obviously all these authorities and, and scientists' community, they are individuals and they will also have fear reactions. So they will also react irrationally and, and put out these statements, whether whether they're well-meaning or not. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's difficult. But obviously the, the better... Uh, uh, the, the more trustworthy institutions we can build who are actually really thinking about the public's best and, and who can earn the public's trust over a long time, uh, the better. And uh, a lot of the time people say that actually what we should do, if possible, is to get people who uh, the public already trusts 
and try to teach them a little bit more about radiation communication. And in this case, often people trust their their uh, own doctors. So they're like general practitioners. And they were saying that we should have some way of giving out some of this information to general practitioners because also they're not really knowledgeable about radiation effects. It, it, it's not your your normal thing you learn about. You learn about infections and you learn about metabolic diseases and stuff like that really affects people a lot. Uh, radiation isn't really on the map there. So that, that would help that having this channel of information from somewhere who you already trust and then not hearing these disparate uh, comments from, from different, different directions. Yeah, I mean, even even scientists can be uh, caught up in, in the fear and and self-bias and it's always a fight as a scientist to to analyze your bias and and question your assumptions and you know continue looking at the literature to make sure yes is this the is this the right answer and i'm always you know questioning myself especially with the 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 weight of pressure from uh anti-nuclear organizations and the constant flow of of poor science coming out of them and uh even even scientists at, at respected universities are putting out uh, really questionable stuff, as far as I can tell, on on nuclear that just you know seems to be there for the fear quotient more than anything, or to make the 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 Greens feel good with their anti-nuclear message. As well on your on your website, you also address the the what about the waste question. Uh, there's a you show a study from Finland that found that the maximum radiation dose that one of our distant descendants might encounter from a leaking geological nuclear waste repository would be equivalent to eating two bananas. Yeah. In fact, Finland is now operating its own geological repository. Is that correct? Yeah, Olkiloto. It's just uh, uh, in the phases of being taken in into use. It's been tested for a long time. And uh, the best studies that you have on nuclear waste storage uh, come from Olkiloto. Uh, so it's. Uh, I'm, I'm really proud about my country that they're finally doing this because uh, there's, there's so much political... Um, uh, capital used in the fact that oh we we don't have a long term storage so the the question is still not solved the thing is that since it's not an urgent problem you have a lot of time to take care of it it's not it's not uh, it's not polluting the ar- surrounding environment uh, you can easily take care of it during the time you have you don't have any hurry finding a storage location for it or even you might wait and, and reprocess it and use it again. So there's lots of choices and you, keeping it as it is now is not problematic. But because it has such a weight in, in people's minds, the fact that, well, we don't have the solution yet, it's just lying around, makes it uh, sound really scary. So then I'm really happy that Finland is actually finalizing their project so that we can s- say that, look, it's not so hard. You drill a hole in, in the bedrock and you have a place there and you put your casks there. And that's it. And we've already done that and we have that. And now actually the Finnish Ecomonen is just put out um, a statement asking the, the uh, there was an official period where you can take statements from, from official organizations. 
that we should finally open our laws to that we can export import this uh, experience uh, this expertise mm. that we can offer a solution to all those countries that have because usually it's we don't have a long long term storage because it's hard to find a place where people would ex- accept this mm-hmm. or there's it's hard to even start these projects because there's also political um, uh, opposition to it so it's really a question of could we please just get on with this project and we've we've done this we have Lots of countries have lots of bedrock to use, so it's not a question of space, it's a question of political will. So we have this political will. There's there's no planetary boundary for when is there too much nuclear waste. It's it's a, always a local issue. Where do we put it? Is this a good spot? Here we can hide, find enough space. Yeah, it's definitely a political solution. Yeah, so, so it's great that now we uh, could offer it to people who are still quibbling about it, okay? Stop quibbling. We have the solution here. We can we can take care of it. Yeah, and we have the great comeback. You know, the 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 unholy three uh, objections to nuclear power: Fukushima, Chernobyl, and what about the waste? <laughs> now we can get rid of the what about the waste. And we know, you know, in Canada, we're also fighting for a deep geological repository to be approved. But there's so much opposition to it from the Greens because suddenly one of their arguments goes away completely. This was exactly the same here in Switzerland. Uh, I visited their their uh, waste storage. Uh, it's it's a Interim, there's, they are planning also of, of actually making a hole in better. But during that time, 400 years or whatever time they want, they have all their waste stored. And when they started this project, a Greenpeace was there, uh, was there proje- uh, uh, protesting it. Don't take care of the waste? I, why is the lo- logic there? <laughs> How can you be against something you want solved? <laughs> yeah. Because you know people are worried about, oh, it's going to leak into the groundwater. But at the depths, I think the studies have been showing at the depths that these things are, are being placed, the groundwater moves like a meter or two every million years. And before it gets to the surface, it's going to be you know hundreds of thousands of years later at the earliest possible date uh, after all of the radiation is, is gone. Yeah, I think that the uh, in the Finnish study they said that a worst possible possible scenario that they can they can fathom it would be 10,000 years before you get to that two bananas level of exposure. <laughs> but but even even though you have a, a repository deep in the earth and e- even though you have a, a slow moving of the groundwater it's it's really mind-boggling when you look at the the a natural nuclear reactor in Oklo, in, in Africa, where uh, you had a natural uh, rich deposit of uranium ore that actually in na- naturally started nuclear fission. So it went through cycles of nuclear fission through hundreds of thousands of years. And it produced, uh, I think it was several tons of waste uh, in, in the spot where it was fissioning. And it's, it's near the ground, it's near surface. It's in the rock near the surface, and it stayed there. Uh, the waste products from the nuclear fission—they don't actually like water phase. They they absorb back into the rock. We have a little bit of leaching naturally all the time into the oceans, right? So we have a little background level in the oceans, but it's not very much. Most of it stays absorbed into the rock. So the even near surface being flushed by rainwaters and groundwaters and whatnot, uh, this nuclear waste has moved a few meters in two billion years <laughs> two while life evolved. <laughs> it's it's completely mind-boggling. Yeah. It, we we were one one 
we were cellular organisms <laughs> back then. That's amazing. Yeah. And it's a it's a very good counter argument for the the worries of of environmentalists that that these things are going to be dangerous. Um, and you're right, there, there has been no pressure from an economic standpoint to move the waste because it doesn't cost much to store it and it's not a big risk. Um, but it, because it looms large psychologically, it's very important to have this thing. And I'm, kudos to Finland to, to, for going forward and getting that done. Yay! Because I think that's going to be, you know, the first domino to fall. And now hopefully other countries can follow along and, and get rid of this this th this psychological weight on the shoulders of everybody. Yeah, I think it's really a, a question of time, a matter of time, because it's it's just been so much more on everybody's consciousness now in the last, I'd say just in the last five years, the situation has gone from almost no one talking about nuclear power to major newspapers starting to talk about these questions in a more nuanced ways, asking questions, were we wrong or should this be a part of the solution? More and more people uh, in, in, you know, everything from celebrities to politicians are starting to speak up about it. And then, as you say, a little bit like a domino effect, people hear more about it. Then there's, we've gone, come to the point that we we are building our repository. Uh, we also have new advanced reactors. And we ha are also seeing more and more of the effects of that, Jan, you know, the the climate is warming. Things are happening. And we're also seeing that despite decades of promises from politicians that we are, we are committed to green goals, not much is happening. Our, our, car our carbon emissions are going up. So I think it's just a question of when will we realize that we have to actually start building massive amounts of low carbon uh, uh, power plants and a lot of those will be nuclear so so I'm just hoping that it will be sooner rather than later for our sakes and for, for the sake of my children and, you know yes and indeed I, I agree completely that's why one of the reasons I started my podcast back um, almost, a, almost a year ago I think we're getting to the to the end of our, our time slot here uh, one, one final question um, so you're a fiction writer what do you like to write about? Uh, I, th I think it's sort of uh, funny because uh, I, I spent so much time trying to figure out what is assumptions and what is real, that we have to anchor our thinking in the real. And then you listen to all this pseudoscientific thinking and there's lots of energy and vibrations and, and you know, quantum things or whatever. And that's actually really fascinating. Those are really interesting stories. That's, that's what sci-fi and fantasy and magic are made of. Mm. So this is what I write. I write fantasy. Ah. And I love to think about how could, uh, how could systems of magic work. Uh, so, so right now, I'm, I'm, for instance, I'm, I'm writing something that, that takes its power from, from um, a, a radiation that is not known to man, that, that is parallel with, an, with uh, solar storms in northern lights, and it, it can penetrate through the magnetic north and south poles, and, and how would that work? And it's a little bit like neutrinos that mostly doesn't in, interact and so on. And it's, it's really a little bit the same kind of, of uh, this kind of creativity of making associations and making interesting con concepts is really like this conspiracy theory thinking uses this part of us. Yeah. We have this creativity in us. So for me, it's just very important that, yes, I love that kind of creativity, but we should also know when we are in the fantasy land and that what value there is in actually also knowing what does the real world entail? What are the stories that are real and what are the stories that we create? Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Ida, thank you so much for coming on the program. I really enjoyed talking with you. 
Thanks so much, Al. It was really enjoyable to have a conversation. <laughs> and, and it's very, so nice of you to, to do this, to be a voice uh, on, the, on the social media landscape and on the in internet landscape, wanting to look at the reality. You as well. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please consider visiting my Patreon page and becoming a patron of this podcast at patron.podbean.com slash the rational view.